This is an old, old story. I'm Alan Elrod. An old, old story is a show that is based on the idea that the best way to deal with our reality, the best way to meet our present and our questions and our conflicts with it is to listen to the stories and the narratives that flow into that present. That letting our histories reverberate around us is revealing. It shows us something. It shows us something true and tangible. And it's that hope that we've predicated this show on. And so today, on our last episode, it's no different. That we head back into Harding's history one last time. But the difference is that today we do so while also intending to plant a very firm foot forward in Harding's future. For this episode, we start in 1957, when George S. Benson is president. And Harding, like many other institutions in that time and in its region, is segregated. But in 1957, the students of Harding and many of its teachers decide that it's time to address this issue. And so a number of students approach William K. Floyd, who was student body president at the time, with the idea that they ought to demand from the administration an end to the de facto segregation at Harding College. William's response is to suggest that maybe a slightly more reserved approach would be better. And he proposes that they submit a statement of attitude. And so the students set to work articulating their petition and gathering signatures. And so on November 10th of 1957, this is what they present to the Harding administration. Attention, members of the Board of Harding College. The following is a statement that was circulated on the Harding College campus to the administration and Board of Trustees of Harding College. A number of members of the Harding community are deeply concerned about the problem of racial discrimination. Believing that it is wrong for Christians to make among people distinctions which God has not made, they sincerely desire that Harding College make clear to the world that she firmly believes in the principles of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. To that end, the undersigned individuals wish to state that they are ready to accept as members of the Harding community all academically and morally qualified applicants without regard to arbitrary distinctions such as color or social level. That they will treat such individuals with the consideration and dignity appropriate to human beings created in the image of God and that they will, at times, face quietly, calmly, patiently, and sympathetically any social pressures intensified by this action. In all, 49 faculty members, 42 staff, 8 executive directors, and a total of 946 signatures were accrued for this statement. At the time, there were only 986 regularly enrolled students at Harding, and so the petition constituted a large majority However, the administration response was not positive. And President Benson, in chapel, gave a speech in which he simply articulated that the redbirds and the bluebirds and the blackbirds of this world do not mix. And so looking to nature drew a very unnatural defense of a deplorable institution. William K. Floyd in an article entitled, Why I Cannot Be a Career Preacher, that appeared in the book Voices of Concern, Critical Studies in Church of Christism, described his encounter with the administration after the submission of the petition. He said that he was told 
that they did not believe that the students knew what they were signing, and therefore the petition could not possibly represent an accurate reading of the students' beliefs. He was told explicitly by one administrator that he believed that William would have difficulty finding work after college because, quote, when one works for an institution, he should accept all its thinking and keep silent about contrary beliefs. He was told that if he wanted to crusade for integration, he should go where everyone believes in it. President Benson and the administration may have articulated many different arguments for why they chose to oppose desegregation. But one was clear. It was the fear of losing face, of losing support from the donors. And it is on this hinge that we would like to turn to our current circumstance at Harding. For many of us who find ourselves frustrated, who find ourselves in conflict, who find ourselves angered or confused by administrative action, by policy, by decisions, there's many times an underlying fear, an underlying concern, sometimes simply an underlying belief that it is too high a loyalty to the donors, to the money, that drives the decisions over the university. We don't mean to draw perfect analogous comparisons between segregation and any other conflict that may arise, but we do believe that it is the sentiment of this petition that matters, and that we still cannot sit by and witness any policy that would isolate, that would dehumanize, that would harm individuals who are perceived as culturally, as socially different, as unwanted. And that it is our belief that the only sin that could be equal to this measure of harm is to silence the noblest voices who speak out against it. It is the sentiment of this petition that drives an old, old story, and we hope that it will be the sentiment of this petition that spurs the dreaming of a better university. And so today we bring you Youth Group in Revolt, an episode dedicated to envisioning a better university, an episode dedicating to witnessing our present and calling for a better future. In this episode, we will be interviewing former contributors, friends, alumni, a host of people who love Harding University as an alma mater, but who dream of an even better school for the students of the future to go to. This is an old, old story. Thank you for joining us. Oh, turn off the TV. It's killing us. We never speak. There's a radio in the corner. Both get old flash.
Well, like we said, this episode we're going to be bringing you uh, a bunch of interviews that we conducted with friends and contributors, uh, getting their take on their time at Harding and their hopes for Harding's future, the ways they like to see it change, the tensions they encountered. And first up is a conversation I got to have over the phone with uh, one-time contributor Nelson Shake and our dear friend Sally Tucker, both of whom attended Harding University and graduated in 2010. Sally and Nelson, thanks for for joining us via phone all the way from Georgia. Um, can you both talk a little bit, I guess, about um, your experience at Harding, both kind of coming in and then um, how how it was while you were there, and I guess especially any any kind of tensions or things and conflicts that maybe you find yourself um, in while you were there as far as students at Harding and, and um, what it was like in terms of as you were leaving and as you were coming in. Um, I know for me, I was a non-Church of Christ student at Harding, and I know for me personally, that was an awkward transition to navigate, um, partly simply because I don't think I really knew what I was entering into, um, but even I think it was made more difficult, too, by I responded to a lot of just the strictures at Harding with kind of a cynical response, but I did feel kind of this outsider complex for a while, but then I think I started to enjoy it because I felt like, like, oh, this is different or something. Um, but I was, I do remember encountering a lot of, there were just certain conversations that, that wouldn't be had, um, be it just even interdenominational conversations. So I remember running into that conflict um, and, and perhaps dwelling on that too much um, than I probably should have, but I, I know it was there. Um, I also remember I had several close friends who were gay at Harding, and that was something that I kind of got a window into, um, just their struggle with being a closet homosexual at Harding, and there wasn't really any resolution to that. I, some of them were still there when I left Harding. I was there from 2006 to 2010, um, and then some of them had graduated before I left, and I know that there wasn't a lot of resolution then, and there hasn't been a lot of resolution now. So I know those were definitely some of the tensions and conflicts that I encountered when I was there. I think it was my approach when I first started at Harding was I want to go here, so whatever strictures may be in line, then, I mean, that's the way it is. I signed up for this, and that's good. But I think it was as I formed relationships with people, and learned how those strictures may limit other people. Um, in Nelson's case, it was friends of his that were um, homosexual, or in my case, it's friends who um, have different religious preferences or, um, gracious, there's just a lot of things going to my mind, but understanding the um, perspectives of other people as I went throughout Harding, which I think is another something I'm thankful for at Harding. And the one thing that comes to my mind is that it's an environment that fosters deep relationships between students and faculty. And there were, I mean, just 
huge, huge blessings from that. Um, but it also is in those relationships that you learn how other people are limited by um, just hurting demands. And I'm thankful for the deep relationships, but I think that is what kind of revealed to me some of the um, more cons um, of the environment. Certain professors are very good about fostering an environment of speech as far as what's going on on campus or what's going on in our lives, and they don't push things aside because there's things that come up. I mean, I wasn't on campus um, when the queer press was released or anything like that, but I'm, I can imagine that there were professors in that environment that fostered discussion about that, that didn't push it under the rug. And so I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think that maybe that's where the split comes in of, I mean, there's there's openness to the conversation and then there's um, kind of behind closed doors decisions, you know, and maybe the division comes between who's willing to foster those discussions because I think that when when you do that with students, you form those relationships and you form that accountability of your community. Um, so, I don't know, that's what, I, that's what comes across my mind. When you were talking about administration to faculty, but in relation to the bubble, like I instantly think of like administration to students and I, would, I wish I had this mindset more when I was a student, but I mean, I very clearly believe now that the bubble only exists as much as you want it to. Mm -hmm. um, so that being, and this is going to sound cocky to say it this way, I don't mean it to, but I was blessed and then thankful that I got to be part of a minority group of students who would be involved in the community and thirsty beyond Harding's just day of service. And not that there's anything wrong with that. That's great. Harding has a day of service but it is a day once a year. And so just it was great being part of this group of students who their mindset more was, okay, we're not here to try to change the community. We're here to build relationships with them and in that process realize that we will be changed by them. And so I'm, I'm thankful that I had a group of friends who realized that the world was bigger, that there wasn't a bubble that existed. You could live in the bubble that Harding constructs very easily if you just want to stay that way, but there was a way to circumvent that with, without, you know, risking being kicked out of school. You know, you could still go and, I guess you could say, be Christ to even Cersei small town around you, and it would shatter the bubble completely, which, I don't know. For me, that's how that was kind of a break from the administration. When we talk about the day of service, like it's this one-day occurrence, even though that's not the intention, it kind of takes on this feel of exhausting our service for the year. And at times, sometimes, I think it can feel like when when tension does arise, the, those, those discussions that happen on campus, especially sometimes, I think, after the queer press issue, it, it sort of felt like, okay, well, this is the cathartic talking. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's necessary. Um one of the things that I thought of while Nelson was talking last and kind of pertains to this is that um, in going to Harding, some people go into that bubble and let Harding dictate their world and where they go and the extracurricular things they do and the things they talk about in class. Um, again, I think it depends on the professor of whether those um, conversations are fostered long term because I think it depends on the perspective of Harding 
may dictate my curriculum, but they will not dictate the mindset and the spirit of our classroom or of our discussion. And that's why, I mean, I'm really thankful for just the program that I was in. I mean, just we we would foster discussion of any kind um, on just in our English courses. I mean, be it this text that is 300 years old or something that's happened on campus, you know, just yesterday. And none of it ever felt forced, and I'm appreciative of that because I'm, I'm kind of I'm on the same track as you here. With I I can view, you know what queer press generates is sort of like, like you said, our cathartic discussion for mm-hmm. the year and like, okay, now we don't need to revisit this again. And you definitely shouldn't, you know, beat conversations into the ground by talking about them too much, but there is a point to where if, I mean, conversation is just natural. And so if you feel the need for it to keep going and going, you know, don't, don't stifle it. And yet I feel like what can happen as great as the intention may have been behind something like queer press, you're eventually going to have some like, okay, well, we're good now. We don't need to talk about this again. You know, it's it's been unavoidable, I feel like, as soon as we brought this up, and, and I even found it when we were preparing um, to do the sort of the introductory piece on the blooper backward thing, the, the queer press really kind of, um, mm-hmm. it, forced, it forced itself into the conversation, and it wasn't the kind of thing um, that we set out for that to really be um, a central yeah. motif. I think it's an unavoidable one. Um, and I guess the last thing to do is sort of ask, on that issue, in that way, um, what are the ways that each of you hope to see Harding move forward, if, if you could see it move forward in the way that you'd really want? I think the main thing that my heart aches for for Harding and for the students there and the faculty is something that I did experience, which is deep community. Um, because if there is community in the spirit of Christ, as Harding claims to um, live and breathe for. I believe that when that true spirit is there in conversation, whether that's between you and a professor or you and a member of the administration or a member of your class, when that spirit is there, there is love. And there's not necessarily agreement and peace in conversation all the time, but I do believe that that Harding has blessed my life with a representation of that true um, just deep community and conversation and just openness with each other. And whether that's with with students who um, are having to hide their homosexuality at Harding or whether that's with students who have been abused as children and or are currently being abused and need to talk to someone about, there's a ton of examples. but. I my heart aches for students and faculty at Harding to find that sense of community in each other. And sometimes that may take stepping back and and looking at your um whether that's your restrictions on things or the way you have um community organized on campus, whatever. I just think that that is vital to the growth of Harding and to the success of her as a school and as a as a Christian community. So, I mean, the thing that I took from Harding is the biggest blessing was the deep relationships, and I would I would hope that that could be for anyone because I believe that is Harding's greatest gift that it can offer. Like when I was visiting Harding while still a high schooler, and students told me like, "Oh, it's the people that make this school." I was like, "Oh, okay, that's cool." <laughs> I didn't really understand what that meant. Now I do, and I would hope 
that anyone could experience that. So I would love to see, honestly, that Harding would say any student can come here. Because right now, and it's changing slowly but surely, but right now I, I still feel like there is a cookie-cutter type student that Harding does look for. And honestly, like, Harding will grow so much more if anybody would be able to feel welcome. Because honestly, Harding needs to realize they have an incredible gift of an environment that can foster deep relationships, and that is a gift that anybody, regardless of background, denomination, religion, orientation, whatever, like everybody can benefit from that, and I believe that, and I would hope that that would be something that really comes through um, more and more in the future, and I think it can, and I think slowly but surely things are, are happening to where it will. That's my hope, at least. Well, like we said, um, bringing you a bunch of different interviews, and we hope with a lot of different perspectives. Um, this next one I got to conduct with my friend, Jane Messina, who was spiritual life director at Harding uh, her senior year, and uh, an active student on campus, and, and a good friend, and we hope that uh, you enjoy and, and appreciate the perspective she brings. Uh, here's Jane. So, Jane, um, I'm, I'm glad you could do this conversation. Um, I think first, if you'd like to just talk a little bit about um, your experience at Harding, because I know you, I think, probably had a pretty drastic difference between um, how you felt about and anticipated um, your time at Harding would, would be um, coming in and, and then the one you had um, by the time you had graduated. Well, on it, uh, Alan, I'm glad I'm able to talk to you. Uh, my experience coming into Harding was, um, I don't know, it was kind of mixed because I was excited to be going to a different place away from home, but at the same time, I felt like I was almost going to a prison <laughs> because it was people that, you know, were different than me, that had different backgrounds than me, um, but at the same time were nice people, so it was easy to adapt. Um, but it ended up being a really positive experience. Uh, although people were different than me at Harding, they were friendly and um, encouraging and, uh, for the most part, accepting, um, which made my experience a lot better at the university. Um, and uh, it, it, it was just, I'd say it was all around a good experience being at Harding. Um, I think that... I think that it's hard to compare it to a different school because I, I don't really have anything to compare it to. But for me, it ended up becoming much more positive than what I expected it to be. And um, within after my first semester, it was less of a prison and more of a place that I didn't want to leave. You know, something that I think is interesting because we've had people talk about, um, particularly people talk about coming in from not being in the same um Face context, not even necessarily just treasure cards, but, but we have had specifically people say, you know, there was a disconnect there. And I think, I think your story is interesting in the sense that I think you came in with one very distinct set of um, kind of, I think, conflicts, maybe with the Harding mindset and, and left maybe with a different set. Right. Um, coming into Harding, I was definitely, um, yeah, it was definitely had a different faith uh, and belief system than uh, most of my fellow students. 
so it made things, uh, you know, I was an atheist. And so I'd say probably coming in, I was more agnostic than atheist because I wasn't really at the committal level (laughs) uh, that it took to be an atheist. Um, And in a lot of ways, I thought maybe Harding would fix that for me. But because of, um, I would say because of, I was intellectually challenged more than I was in high school. And um, and I'm a free thinker that I, I, by the end of my first semester, I'd come to conclude that there was no God and I really accepted atheism. That was, um, you know, it was something that I hid from a lot of people, to be honest with you. Um, and it's not because I, like, was ashamed of it or, um, you know, didn't feel comfortable telling people. It just almost came to, like, why bring up the subject I don't really want to hear the conversations that come from it. I don't really want to be asked the questions. Not that I can't answer them, but um, it's just not worth my time, you know. And I, I wasn't worried about losing friends over it. I just didn't really want to go through um, the whole, you know, mantra. And, uh, I, I, you know, I never went to church. No one ever, you know, ironically, no one ever asked me to go to church my freshman year of college as an atheist. And people knew that I wasn't going to church. I was just sleeping in my roommates, my sweet mates. Um, and ironically, when I did became a did become a Christian my junior year, my sweet mates from my freshman year, when I was an atheist, uh, they didn't even know that I was an atheist. Which is just uh, I, I don't know. I just found that kind of kind of says something about the environment. It's almost like don't ask, don't tell. You know, if you fit the certain um, agenda, then then um, if you fit what it looks like to be a Harding student, then there's really no problems. And I think that's I think that's a real big problem at Harding. Um, we're not really asking the questions that need to be asked. And it's not that I have a problem with the Church of Christ, because I don't. I mean, I, I love members of the Church of Christ. You know, as somebody that studied church history, I love the Restoration Movement, and I think it's fascinating. But I have a problem with not um, not being real, you know, and almost becoming comfortable. I don't think um, Christianity is, is comfortable, and I don't think atheism is comfortable. There, if you're extremely passionate about something, you're going to face discomfort. And um, I felt like people were holding on to comfort more than they were holding on to Christ. And I, I couldn't do that. And and I think in a lot of ways I was immature to associate that with the Churches of Christ. But it's all I really knew. I didn't grow up a Christian, so um, it's all I could really do was associate it with the Churches of Christ. Um, and so I chose to, you know, be non-denominational uh, and go to a different church in Cabot. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was I had a different experience even after becoming a Christian at Harding. And I think, you know, honestly, one of the big things we've talked about is just the need. And this is kind of what I want to end on, is the need for a dialogue. And that's why I thought, you know, right perspective kind of being able to come from both a rejection of faith and then sort of a um, an argument within the faith framework. That, that right. Both of those are interesting in addressing the need for a better dialogue. And so I guess my question is sort of how do you see, um, what do you wish to see? What do you think when when you hear about Harding in the future, what what do you hope is is happening in terms of um I don't want to say exact conversation because you know there's a multitude of conversations, but I guess 
in the broad sense, the meta conversation on, on campus, what do you hope uh, is being done to, to, to create that dialogue that can be, uh, like you said, uncomfortable and, and, and probing? If I had a suggestion to make about Harding, um, I don't know, uh, to get out of this, um, uh, to create an environment where it's okay to ask questions, where it's okay to have moments of disbelief, where it's okay to say, like, I want to drink alcohol, <laughs> you know, where it's okay to, um, you know, just, just ask those, step outside of maybe what you had been born into and grown up in and, and try something different. And I think that Harding in the past has had, it's almost been like a breeding ground for the same thoughts and ideas. And every now and then a, a new mind or, or like a, a new phase will come through. And those phases, are they're fantastic. And they shake up the campus a little bit. And those are good. But if we could create an environment where we weren't allowing people to believe just because that's what they grew up in, but we were really challenging them to go above and beyond and, and really asking them, is is this real? You know, are your beliefs real? Um, and and I, I see that in some Bible classes, but I think it, it has to be something that is a, a perspective of the campus, a policy that they hold. And um, when we've created an environment for open dialogue where there's no judgment passed, and no guilt necessarily associated, um, then we're creating an environment where people can feel free to um, trust God on the process. When we put rules and regulation and religion to deal with our, you know, uh, disbelief, we aren't trusting God with it, you know. We're making rules. We're putting our faith in rules. That if we do all this and do all of this, we're going to be okay, when that's not true. Well, John McRae has been another contributor to our show in the past, and we were delighted to get to have a conversation with him. His thoughts on uh, community and reconciliation are ones that I've always been blessed and privileged to hear, and we had this conversation with him by phone. We hope that you enjoy this interview. John, I'm glad you could do this uh, conversation Um one of the one of the things that we've been we've been finding, I think, when we talk to a lot of people about their hurting experience and especially about their frustrations, is the sense that there's either a lack of or kind of an incomplete dialogue on campus. That either there's really not a conversation happening, or if it is happening, it's, it's somehow excluding um, certain parties or voices, and it's not really taking the form it needs to take. So, the first um, Thing I'd like to, like you to talk about a bit is, is um, maybe your experiences, kind of trying to flesh out that that dialogue while you were here, and, and some of the things that you think might um, improve it. Yeah, um, there were certainly times where I felt that muzzle, um, and I know that many others, including faculty, have felt that way as well. That there wasn't a um, a space made within that place for that, that openness and, and critical reflection to happen, whether or not um, people agreed, you know, which is fine, the disagreement could exist, and we could all still inhabit that place together, but there was just no um, no openness for that dialogue to, to actually occur. Um, but I think 
I do think it depends on where you were on campus. I, I think as an English literature major there, I was able to find some of that conversation that maybe some others who were in different departments weren't able to find because when you when you engage literature and voices from across different cultures and, and different points in history, you can't escape being exposed to dissenting voices and to um, to perspectives that are going to disagree with your own. So even if the professor was fairly, um, I don't know if orthodox is the best word, but, but fairly orthodox, um, they were still teaching material that was kind of insidiously um, getting into our heads and making us think about things in ways that, that the administration may not have supported. Um, I want to, what you just got into right there with the administration is another thing that's kind of come up is, um, if you feel distinctly, I mean, you said you felt comfortable with the English department, and I think a lot of students have at some point found either faculty or sometimes whole departments or, or people that they were able to connect to. And I guess my question is, um, I don't think it's uncommon in any circumstance for ultimately, you know, when there's a rift, it kind of comes between um, sort of where the perceived lines, boundaries of the power structure are. And, and Harding, I just think it's an interesting dynamic because um, so much of that seems to be drawn, not even necessarily between students and teachers, but, but between students' years and then, then the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Do you think that kind of contributes? I feel like part of the problem is I feel like because of that that disconnect, in some ways, you know, I think it it, it makes um, teachers seem accessible when 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 they're agreeable or when they're open um, to what a student may be going through. But at the same time, and really, sort of what we referenced even in in the Bluebird Blackbird um, petition, I think that that disconnect. Um it's hard to, to kind of put your finger on it. It's, it's a small campus, you know, relatively small, and I think that it's interesting that there is such a wide um, gap between the administration and the student body. And that's not claiming that, I, that the, you know, the people that you're interviewing for this podcast are representative of Harding, because I, I don't think that's the case. But I do think, in my experience at Harding, that there were there were more students open to at least discussing different viewpoints and that could could handle that than I think some in the administration would, would think or would um, be comfortable with. And I remember that was the, the case when we were getting H humanity and fair trade stuff on campus, but there was there was a fairly concerted effort of people who were wanting to, to make some changes and who wanted to do it um, in collaboration with the administration. It wasn't um, done as a as an act of distancing and trying to set up a rift between the students and the administration, but several members of the administration re- reacted very negatively and very strongly and used um, labels that they thought were derogatory to <clears throat> to define what we were doing. And and I just I see that as a as a strong uh, separation, and that there doesn't seem to be feet on the ground. Um, interacting with what's going on. And if there is, then they're just concerned with what they think is going on and maybe trying to to curb that. And but there's there's something interesting to that disconnect that I think maybe can actually foster some of the more um 
radical thought that can happen in these quote unquote underground movements that sometimes I don't think you see at more um supposedly progressive universities is that when the faculty and when the, um are more open and more critical that that could potentially breed apathy among students because the critical thought is already being done for them. But at places like Harding, where that atmosphere is not as open and hospitable, students are sometimes forced to do that uh, journey of discovery and that um, deconstruction on their own. And that makes it more personal and it makes it more um, urgent. And so, ironically, I think that that, that separation at risk between students and the administration could actually be what causes some of the discontent with the way things are to to become more apparent and to become more uh, widespread. I guess that just makes my, my last question kind of um, the, do you see um, potential there to to affect um, an even better kind of conversation on campus? What do you, what do you see at that root? Mm. Um, I see students who are who are still engaging with these uh with this praxis and trying to get these um you know these ideas out there. I see h humanity still thriving. I see the farm effort becoming a bigger deal. I think these sorts of conversations um the anthology events have been important for students to take the initiative um and for i think faculty are are going to have to be a little bit more open and a little bit more risky about about their perspectives and decide where their priorities actually lie. And I think that one thing is that Harding needs to take seriously its place in Searcy, its location in Arkansas, and this sort of mission-oriented aspect of Harding that is so global in nature makes Harding almost exist in a vacuum as if it doesn't have any context. And there are incredible things that could root Harding in in its place and be involved in issues of racism and classism and and speak to the ways that the um that certain interpretations of the biblical narrative could um could engage with that. And I think that Harding doesn't have to lose its identity as a Church of Christ school. It doesn't have to give that up in order to be open, I don't think. But I think it does have to hold it tenuously and think about the um, the multiple ways of interpretation of, of what they think and invite people into that dialogue. And instead of being so worried about being watered down and, and fearing the other, they should welcome um, the other into that place and make the uh, you know make that that effort to to think about things in new ways. How do you think that the queer press conversation? Um, we've talked about it some with people in the, in, the, in the context of Harding itself, but how do you feel like that conversation, which has been recent, um, plays out in the relationship between Harding and Cersei? And how do you see Harding being able to kind of emulate that model that you laid out in, in that particular conversation? Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of potential for Harding to uh, 
to take that role. I think that the connection between a a very conservative um, interpretation of the Christian tradition, um, especially in the context of uh, the South, has a um, Harding just caught up in that, and I think that there are other interpretations that could enable Harding to to embody a very very different way of engaging with the other. I mean, you know, you have these uh, biblical commands to welcome the stranger, welcome the foreigner into your midst, and also to recognize that the stranger is already in your midst. So it's not about welcoming LGBTQ persons into your midst. It's recognizing that they're already here. They're already part of us. They already constitute who we are. And so now it's about finding ways to acknowledge that and to um, celebrate the people who are here with us and to to include them as as members um, of this body, and I think by by ignoring that, um, Harding is is shutting their eyes to the reality as it already is. They they don't keep gay students out of Harding. There are people who are already there, and so by you know it's even worse the way it is right now because it's pretending like something doesn't exist. And I think that. The potential is there to to reinterpret these stories and find a different way to hold them. Well, this last interview is one that we actually got to have in person. It was uh, conducted with our friend and contributor Jimmy Shaw and Nathan Doris. We were thrilled to have both of them together and to actually have a live in-person interview. Uh, we hope that you enjoy their thoughts and and find them enlightening. Um, Jimmy and Nathan, I want to thank you for sitting down and, and talking with me. Um, we're recording this right now on the heels of, of Spring Scene Weekend. And one of the interesting things to me about that weekend is how much, uh, aside from the way that they sell the amenities of Harding from, from the buildings to the dorms to, to campus life, is how much they promote this idea of Harding as a place, as this distinct uh, place where specific relationships and experiences and um, other kinds of events occur and are forged and don't really happen elsewhere. This idea of Harding as is a very distinctive place. And I'm, I'm curious to know both how you've experienced Harding in your own time and way as, as that place and then also sort of how you, you view um, your interactions with it and potentially how you ought to interact with it in that way. Yeah, um, so I'm just about to end my time here. We've spent five years here. And uh, um, in a lot of ways, I think, I think Harding does sell itself as, as a thing, as a certain, um, with a certain identity, with a certain face. And um, I'm not, not, I'm not unique in coming here for that and being enticed by that. I, I realized that I came to Harding for, for a specific number of reasons um, that were very in line with what Harding was selling. Um, and as, as time has gone by, uh, I think my relationship with, with, with that image has been tumultuous at best. Uh, and I think that there's a, there's a lot that I owe to Harding and to, to that image being projected for me as something that I could uh, wrestle with um, and ultimately you know, come out where I am today. And so um, it's important for me to recognize that there's, there's a, 
there's a sense in which as much as I may rail against this projection, this idea of Harding as a place, as a specific kind of package, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am without, without that very thing. Um, and so, so those two kind of exist in tension and in tandem and are, are inseparable in a lot of ways. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I think it's a beautiful thing in a lot of ways to talk about Harding as a place and as a community and having this sense of it as place. But I think it's also kind of tempting in a way. I personally have had a long relationship with Harding, almost 25 years now, versus an undergrad and as a graduate student and then living away, but having family and friends working here and then returning and now a graduate student again, and knowing lots of people who are deeply embedded in the life of Harding. And I think that there's a temptation sometimes to, um, to speak of Harding in ways that suggest an it a kind of false concreteness as though a thing exists. When in fact, we also know that that thing is made up of people and that much of what we may criticize or enjoy, whether we're, whether we're presenting it as something to be marketed or something to be frustrated about, as, as you might say, Nathan, uh, that there's a temptation to speak of it as a singular thing rather than recognize that there are many people involved in all of those decisions and all of those realities that make Harding a, a place. Yeah, I think that that sort of attention for me is as well, especially, you know, you go to a school that, like we've already said, really pushes that idea of place um, and the whole it's great to be at Harding kind of mantra. But then also has these buzzwords like camaraderie, which to me suggests this really molecular relationship-based approach mm -hmm. to the school, this idea of it's the students and their relationships and their friendships and their experiences that make up whatever it is to be here. And so I wonder, do, is there a way, especially moving forward when you deal with whatever tensions you're experiencing here, to make those meshed or, you know, or should they, should they be separated? Should they be parsed out or, or can they be parsed out uh, as ideas? I don't know that they can. I mean, I think that the reality is that's always going to live in tension, that you are you are speaking of both at the same time. There's a there's a truth to that sense of unity, that sense of unifying identity, whatever that is, camaraderie, what, whether it's something that's being sold or something that's being engaged with or something that's being railed against. There, there is a truth to that in some ways, but you're also going to have to hold in tension the truth that it is um, a community of people and that there's a great kind of diversity underneath that and that those voices, all of those diverse voices are important to who and what Harding can be at any moment in time, especially going forward into its own future. Yeah, I think... Um, I think that it, it's it's essential that especially those of us who may be who may be frustrated with some of the ways that Harding presents itself or or handles itself in the world and represents um, a particular brand of Christianity to the world. I think um, that that it's important to recognize that it's not this monolithic thing that that even admittedly by itself that it's a it is based on on relationships um, and and on on space um, that it's not. 
concrete in, in some totalizing sense, but that there are cracks and fissures and openings and spaces for, um, for people like myself to, uh, to rest in or to, to escape into when, when need be. I think it's also important to recognize, valuable to recognize, that critiques of our university can sometimes be too easy. Something like, not unlike perhaps picking a fight with one's parents in, in early adulthood, where you find those those things that have now driven you crazy and you want to, you know, speak against them. It's not probably not surprising then that we refer to universities as alma mater, this, you know, nourishing mother. Um, what does it mean to pick a fight with your mom? As a, as a young adult, and then later to recognize that she's not just all of those things that you wanted to rail against, that she's also many of the things that you remember from when you were five. And so that there's this need to not fall too easily into the space of critique, but to recognize that in all of those relationships, there is a maturing perspective going on and a need for reflection on all of those things. Um. I'm not sure how anyone at Harding will react, at least administration, to being compared to a woman at our head. But <laughs> I think that uh, these are these are good ways uh, to perceive it. And I think especially the idea that this is a little bit like a, a, a child and parent relationship puts, at least what I've experienced here in the past few years, a lot of those conflicts in perspective. So thank you both for your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this has been an old, old story. As always, this episode was created and produced by Zachary Crow and myself. Special thanks to all of our interviewees, all of our contributors, everyone that has helped us over the past year put this podcast together, come up with ideas, sit down and had conversations. Um, I just want to say it would not have been possible with any of you. It certainly would not have been possible without the incredibly robust, creative, and editing skills of Zachary Crow. Uh, who I have been blessed to get to do this show with, to work with, to know, and who I wish, along with Nathan Doris, an absolutely wonderful year at the Open Door in Atlanta. This show, we hope, is not the end. It is merely a prologue to an even deeper, richer story that reaches into the past and into the future, that brightens doorways, that lifts hopes. We hope it is something that pushes you further. Don't let it be don't let it fall on your ears. Don't let it be something that ends with this episode keep pushing. We hope to see you back in some new way, in some new form. Until then, to all of you, keep telling stories, keep listening to stories, and keep being part of stories. Thank you all for joining us.